All right. Let's open our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. And as you do that, I want to begin by saying that a few weeks ago, um, was at Pursuit, and we played a game that I'm sure some of you know called Mafia. Anyone here ever played Mafia? So I, I had never played it before. I'd heard of it. Um, and so, you know, I was told the rules, told what I, what I can do and can't do. I had to close my eyes at certain times. I had to make guesses at certain times. But, you know, the whole time we were playing, I was just utterly confused. I, I had no idea what was going on. I had no idea why we were doing the things we were doing. I, I quickly was not part of the game anymore. And even as I just looked on from the outside, I had no idea what was going on. Once the game was over, I had no idea how it ended. Uh, it was just completely confusing. I knew the rules, but I didn't understand the game itself, and it was not a fun experience for me. And I'm still telling Lauren, she's like, I don't, I don't know what that game is about. I don't get it. So maybe you guys understand, and maybe I'm, I'm, I'm just challenged in games here. But I think that this is very similar to what many people experience in marriage. They know at some level you know, a wife knows I'm supposed to follow my husband. A husband knows I'm supposed to lead my wife. But, but, but there's no framework for understanding what is marriage actually about. What, what is marriage? Why are we doing these things? Why are we supposed to, to, to follow these instructions that God has given us? And it, it leads to frustration and confusion and a desire to not do those things that God has called us to do because we don't understand a, a bigger framework of what marriage is. And many people just don't persevere in it because they don't, they don't understand what they've gotten themselves into. Why, why would a wife submit when she doesn't know what it means to be a wife? Or why would a husband lay down his life in sacrifice when he doesn't understand what it means to be a husband? Why would a couple stay together through hard times when they don't understand what it means to keep a covenant and what marriage really is? We are in a place and a time where marriage as an institution, has become so obscured, so confused, that as I opened up Ephesians 5 this week and began studying this passage and preparing to preach the next verse, I, I, I just thought we, we need a framework. It's, it's going to be no use talking about submission, talking about sacrificial love, if we don't have a larger framework for understanding what marriage is all about. And so this week... In the next few weeks, we're going to be in this text, Ephesians 5, 22-33. We're going to read the whole passage first this morning, but then what we're going to do is we're going to start at the end. This morning, we're going, to, we're going to zone in on the last few verses, which will help us get a framework. And really, starting at the end is going to take us all the way back to the beginning in Genesis, and we're going to work our way through this morning. But, but the goal this morning is that we would have a stronger, better grasp of what biblical marriage really is of what marriage is all about, so that we can then hear the instructions the next few weeks about a wife's calling and a husband's calling, and we can have a framework for following those instruct instructions. So, so, so I hope to strengthen our grasp of marriage as a whole and a framework for marriage biblically, but, but also, you know, it's, it's one thing to understand something for yourself. It's another thing to be able to explain it and defend it to others. And we live in a time when we need to be able to defend marriage in our culture. We need to be able to defend why we believe what we believe about marriage. This is the point of difference and the point of, of confrontation with our culture in our day and age is, is manhood and womanhood and marriage and sexuality. These are the things that we clash with our culture in. 
And we need to be able to defend a biblical idea of marriage. And so I hope that this sermon also help us not only be able to know it better for ourselves, but be able to defend what the Bible teaches about marriage. When I think about where our culture is, I just, I just want to paint a picture for you of the confusion in our culture. Now, marriage is not gone. I mean, marriage is fine as long as divorce is fine as well. As long as there's a way out, it's fine to get in. Our, our culture celebrates sexual freedom over faithfulness. Terms like submission and headship have come in our day and age to imply abuse and to imply authoritarianism. That, 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 no, people can't hear those words without thinking of, of, of some authoritarian abusive situation. The whole idea of roles within a marriage is, is evaporating. There, there's no difference between a man and a woman, a husband and a wife, and what each one is called to do. They're just interchangeable or are not necessary at all. In that case, marriage does not need to be between one man and one woman. It can be between two men or two women. And and, and at that sense, there's even people that believe it does not need to be limited to only two people. Why why limit it to two? This is where our culture is, what our culture believes about these things. And it's so different than a biblical ethic for marriage and a biblical picture of marriage. And if we're going to try to live out that picture in a culture that's hostile to it, we need to be able to articulate the big picture. We need to be able to explain to someone who questions us, well, let me take you back to the beginning and help you understand where we're coming from and why we believe what we believe. And so this morning we're going to see four parts of the story of marriage. First, let's read, let's read Ephesians 5, 22 through 33. We're going to be in this text for three weeks, and then we're going to dive into the end of the passage, and, and we're going to move around the scriptures a little bit this morning as well. So Ephesians 5, beginning in verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies, He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ, just the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So this morning we're going to see four parts to a biblical framework of marriage, really four parts to the story of marriage as the Bible develops our idea of marriage. And it begins, let's look at verse 31, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. Paul is quoting from the book of Genesis here, Genesis chapter 2. And so to to understand what he's saying here, I want to go all the way back for a a, a bit of our sermon this morning to Genesis. So turn you back in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. If we're going to understand what marriage is about, we need to understand how it comes about in these chapters. And the first part of the story of marriage that we see is the creation of marriage. The creation of marriage. 
Genesis 1.1 says, In the beginning, God. In the beginning, God. And we start there. Foundational to marriage is an understanding that before anything was, there was God. Existing in eternity in all his glory and power and transcendence and love, three in one. And this God is the creator of the heavens and the earth. Genesis 1 tells us that everything he created with the word of his mouth was, was good. It was all good. And then it tells us that at the end of the sixth day, at verse 26, let's read from verse 26 in Genesis 1. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And so as the crowning achievement of his good creation, God makes humans. He makes man. Notice he says, let us make man, which begins to give us a hint that even at this early stage that God is, is not a simple being. He is not just simply one, but there's plurality within God. We've come to know by the time that, that Christ comes that the, the, the God is a trinity. He is three in one. And even in making man, look in, in 27, so God created man in his image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. Even in creating male and female, we see so this plurality coming through, this one God making man in his image, but male and female. We, we, we see plurality coming through here. And God, God creates man, and, and God says, be fruitful and multiply Fill the earth and to do it. This in itself begins to show one of the purposes of marriage that we should be fruitful and have families and fill the earth and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves. Then down to verse 31, God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. So that's the big picture flyover from Genesis 1 of what God did in creation. The, the one God who's always existed made a good creation. At the crowning pinnacle achievement of it was the creation of male and female in his image. Very good. And then chapter 2 gives us a little bit of a different perspective on how this it, it takes us into to, to the ground level to see how this creation of male and female came about. Adam was created first. He was in the garden and then in verse 18, look what God says in Genesis 2:18. The Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. Now just imagine with me, this is Genesis. This is, this is uh, before the fall. This is God in the garden with Adam. And he says, it's not good that he should be alone. How is anything not good in the garden of Eden before sin entered the world? I thought it was very good, but this is not good. Why is that? Because, because God in himself... Is, is a person who gives. God, in, in his triune nature, he gives and he loves. And Adam is alone. As a reflection of who God is, he needs to be able to give himself, love someone else with the love that he's receiving from God. And so it's not good for him to be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. That word helper is used of God in Scripture, so it's not a, it's not a derogatory word in any way. It means a compliment a, a, a wise compliment to him that, that is fit just for him. And, and so, God gives, brings Adam into a deep sleep. He removes a rib from Adam. He makes the woman out of the rib. And then look at 22. The rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Like the first father bringing his daughter down the aisle to the groom, God brings the woman to the man, and then the man said, 
way before the song at last came, at last, poetry, right? This at last is bone of my bones. Adam is in love. Memony Caesar, at last, someone that is fit for me. At last, someone that compliments me. At last, someone that I can love and serve and give myself to. Verse 24, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And this, this pictures the covenant union that God himself performs in bringing Adam and Eve together. This is the picture of marriage we get. And to put it all together into a definition, marriage is a lifelong covenantal union between one man and one woman who are equal in dignity and distinct in role. It's important. Lifelong covenant union between one man and one woman, and that one man and woman are equal in dignity, equal in worth, equal as image bearers of God, yet distinct in role. She is a helper fit for him. She is a complement to him. They are not just the same. The principle that we can take from this first act, this first scene, the creation of marriage is this. Marriage is good. Marriage is good. God's design of marriage is good. Mar- marriage the way that God intended it to be is good, and we should never compromise that. We should never sacrifice that. We should never apologize for the Bible's view of marriage. It is the best view of marriage. It is good. It is very good. It is joyful. And a few applications on that then is first, if you are not married, it is good to desire marriage. God designed marriage. He he. He invented this. He made it. And it's not a bad thing to desire to be married. It's a good thing. So, so, so desire it and, and pray to God to fulfill that desire and prepare yourself uh, to, to be someone who can enter into marriage and, and, and fulfill that role that God has given. Desire marriage. And then if you're married, I just want to say enjoy your marriage. Enjoy being married. Enjoy your spouse. Enjoy the covenant union you have with your spouse and cultivate that enjoyment in intentional ways. Cultivate it by going on date nights and cultivate it by, by yeah, getting to know your spouse more and more. Cultivate it by being, being with other couples and enjoying marriage together. But enjoy your marriage. Marriage is good. We should not apologize for that. Now why is it then, if marriage is so good, why is it that, that people grumble about their spouses all the time? Well, let's look at the next seen in scripture and that's the subversion of marriage the subversion of marriage right after genesis 2 ends right after this good picture of marriage and of intimacy and of covenant union right after genesis 3 now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the lord god had made satan in the garden is crafty and he in war against God, turns his sights on God's created people, God's image bearers. And I want you to notice something this morning. What does Satan do? He spoke to the woman. He spoke to the woman. Now that's not insignificant. Satan, in speaking to the woman, is intentionally subverting God's design, God's order of marriage. God designed Adam to be the head of this marriage, and Satan comes to the woman and tempts the woman. And then look down 
in verse 6, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Where was Adam? He was with her. He was with her, which means that he was being passive. He was not fulfilling his role to protect his wife, to lead his wife, to nourish his wife. And, and, and instead, he was, he was letting her lead. He was, he was allowing her to be tempted. He was following her into sin. Now, this in no way, I want to clarify something, this in no way teaches that, that Eve was more susceptible to temptation than Adam. That's not what this is about. This is about Satan subverting God's instituted order within marriage. Subverting what God had designed. I, I heard one um, pastor recently answered the question, how important are these things? And he said, well, Satan obviously saw they were important because he went after the woman. So, so how important are these things? Important enough that Satan subverted the design of marriage as he sought to, to bring them into sin. And, and, and so Adam, in his passivity, allows Eve to eat. He follows her. Mar- the design of marriage is subverted here. And then in the curse, look at what God says to the woman in verse 16. You shall, your, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Some of your translations might say something like your desire shall be for your husband. Some might say your desire will be against your husband. Verse, um, look, look at chapter 4, verse 7. This is the story of Cain and Abel. Verse 7, if you do well, will you not be accepted? If you, if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. So same words being used there to talk about sin crouching at Cain's door. And, and it's, not, it's not a good thing, is it? To be contrary to is to be against. It's, it's against you. And, and here he's saying, your desire is going to be against your husband. He's going to rule over you. What this is picturing, church, is, is as Adam and Eve fell into sin, as marriage was subverted, now every marriage in all of history has strife. There's no marriage ever that has not had strife. That that natural, God-given, good order of submission and leadership now has become an order where, where the wife does not want to submit. She's against her husband, and the husband rules in a harsh, authoritarian way. And, and why is this? It's not be, this is not because of the biblical vision of marriage. This is because how sin has distorted marriage. The, the, the abuses you see in, in um, for instance, in, in a husband being harsh and abusive toward his wife, that is not biblical. That is anti-biblical. That is anti-God. That is not his vision. And we see that enter in here. Your desire shall be against your husband. He shall rule over you. Strife has entered in because of sin. And you know what this means? Marriage is good. Yes, because God created it, but it also means marriage is hard. Marriage is hard. It's hard because of sin. If you have struggles in your marriage, it is at some level because of sin. If there was no sin, there would be no conflict in your marriage. It's also hard because of Satan. Again, Satan understands the importance of marriage in God's will and God's plans, and he attacks married couples. He attacks the institution of marriage. He understands that, that, that this is not an insignificant thing. This is integral to, to God's design for human flourishing. And so, yes, marriage is hard. And what I want to say as an application of that is if you are struggling in your marriage, don't be discouraged. Don't be overly discouraged by struggles because this is what, this is what we know is true. 
We are sinners. We have a spiritual enemy. Conflict is going to happen in marriage because of those things. It's, you're not alone. You're not abnormal in that. So don't be discouraged. Don't, don't, don't act like, like you um, are the only couple who's ever struggled. No, we all struggle in our marriages because of sin and because of spiritual attack. At the same time, though, don't be passive. You're struggling? Yes, we understand. God's word tells us that's going to happen. But don't be passive in that struggle. But, but seek help and seek growth and seek to fight against your sin. Sin is crouching out the door. You must rule over it, is what God said to Cain. That's what we have to do with sin in our marriages. It's against us, but we need to fight it. We need to be, 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 be active in that. And so the creation of marriage teaches us that marriage is good. The subversion of marriage teaches us that marriage is hard. But there is hope because of the redemption of marriage. The third scene is the redemption of marriage. Right here in the curse, right here in Genesis 3, verse 15, God says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Adam and Eve did not die that day, but God in his grace gave them a son. And he gave them a promise that a seed will come. And one day this seed will crush that serpent's head and it will reverse the effects of this curse and he will save you from all that has just happened. And the whole Old Testament traces this seed until we get to the book of Matthew. You can turn to Matthew chapter 4. The Son of God is born incarnate, Jesus Christ. He is baptized. God pronounces his pleasure at his baptism. And then in chapter 4 of Matthew, Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you're the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you're the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give to you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him. Behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Jesus, in the garden, did not fall to the devil's temptation. Jesus is the better Adam. Jesus is the one who can represent us. Jesus is the promised seed who did not sin. And then Matthew tells us that this sinless Son of God, this sinless seed, died on the cross. He crushed the head of the serpent by being crushed by God, bearing the curse of sin, bearing the wrath of God for us. And then three days later, he rose from the dead in power and glory, never to die again. He ascended into heaven. And the book of Ephesians has told us what it means. The book of Ephesians has told us that we were dead in our sin. We were followers of the devil. We were children of wrath. But God has sent his son and in him we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. In him we are made alive. In him we are given new hearts. And now obedience is possible. Marriage is possible. Yes, it's good. Yes, it's hard. But in Jesus, marriage is possible. 
We now can obey God's command. That's why Paul is able to write to wives, submit to your husbands. Before Christ, that we could not obey that command. We could not fulfill that command because we were sinners. We follow in Satan. But now in Jesus, with new hearts and the Spirit living in us, by His grace, we can obey. Husbands now can, can love their wives and lead their wives because of Jesus. He redeems us from our sin, and in redeeming us, He redeems marriage. Marriage is possible. It is possible for a wife to submit to her husband. It is possible for a husband to love his wife in a way that reflects God's design for marriage. And so, church, if this is true, there's some applications here. First, what marriage is possible. What does this mean? What does this look like? One, marriage is possible because we, we've received grace. We've received forgiveness. We've received forgiveness at a level that we could never imagine, a debt that we could never have paid back. God has forgiven us freely and fully. And so when our spouse sins against us, we now, by God's grace, can forgive them. Forgiveness gives freedom and power to our marriages. The ability to forgive, the ability to not hold sin against, the ability to to move forward when you've been hurt together and to keep that covenant is possible because we know how much we've been forgiven. If God has forgiven me, how could I not forgive my spouse? Because your spouse will hurt you. Your spouse will sin against you. Every time God calls us to forgive as we've been forgiven. So we forgive by the grace of the gospel, but then we obey in the power of the gospel. God calls us not only to forgiveness, but to obedience, to, to, to lay down our lives for our wives, to, wives, to submit to your husbands. And we can do this because Christ has redeemed us from our sin. So church, marriage is good because God created it. Marriage is hard because of the fall, but marriage is possible because Jesus has come. And he's died for our sins and risen again, given us new hearts and given us his spirit. That's not where Paul ends here. Finally, the fulfillment of marriage. You don't need to turn there, but I want to um, point you to a verse in Matthew 22. First, Jesus is being tested by the religious leaders. And they, they come up with a trick question and essentially say, you know, if this... Uh, lady's husband has died, and then um, she gets remarried to uh, the next guy, and the next guy, and then they all die. Who's, whose husband is going to be her husband in heaven? You know what Jesus says? He says, there's no marriage in heaven. There's no marriage in heaven. You're not going to be married or given marriage in heaven. And, and, and when I hear that, I think, wait a second. I thought marriage was good. I thought this was God's design. I thought that this was part of God's good creation. How is there not going to be marriage in the new heavens and new earth? Isn't this one of the best things about God's creation? Well, look what Paul says in Ephesians 5 again. Ephesians 5. First, notice he quotes Genesis. Let's read it again. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery of God's creation of marriage in Genesis is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. If marriage is so good, why won't it be in heaven? Because marriage is meant to point us to a greater reality, Christ and the church. God's original design of marriage, one man, one woman, and a lifelong complementary covenant, this is meant, God designed it originally to point to Christ in the church. 
It's not just that God's looking down and saying, what, what would be a good illustration for what Christ has done? Oh, marriage, that's a good illustration. No, no, God designed marriage to be the illustration. He designed it to be the picture. That, that's, that's, that's been the point all along. It was a mystery in the Old Testament. Now it's been revealed because Christ has come. And how does this work? Well, well Christ has laid his life down for us. He has loved us sacrificially. He has treated us as his own body. That's what we're going to see in a few weeks in Ephesians 5, the verses before, all the ways that Christ has sacrificially loved us. And then the church gladly, joyfully, trustingly submits to Christ because of his love and his authority over them. And this picture pictures the gospel. This picture of marriage is, is, is what the gospel is. It's, it's, it's a husband who's laying down his, his life for his wife and a wife who's responding by joyfully, trustingly submitting to her husband. That is a picture of what Christ has done for us and what the church does in response. Marriage is just a picture of something much more real, something much more lasting. So, so marriage is good, marriage is hard, marriage is possible, but, but finally, marriage is passing. It's passing. Your marriage should be forever in the sense that you should stay married the rest of your life, but marriage is not forever. One day, human marriage as an institution will be behind us. It will be past. Why? Because the fulfillment will come at the marriage supper of the Lamb, in the new heavens and the new earth. God's bride, Christ's bride, will be caught up to be with Christ forever. And we will enjoy Him forever. And we will be united to Him forever. We already are united to Him. We'll be even more perfectly united to Him on that day. And this is what marriage is pointing to, church. This, this, this is the point. And so, some applications on this. Now, the first one, I just want to tell a story, just a personal story about this. Um, when I was in college... Dating this girl named Candace, and um, we had we had a, a hard breakup, and then we got back together. It all it all was good, but I was slow in that. I, I thought I'm going to take my time with this because that was hard, and, and at the same time I, I was at my grandparents' 50th wedding anniversary. Now at the same time, my sister had just gotten engaged, and I was. Just looking at my grandparents after 50 years, and, I, and you know what I saw? I, I saw 50 years later, very practically, I, I saw my grandfather sacrificially loving my grandmother. And I saw my grandmother trustingly submitting to my grandfather. 50 years later, in just tiny ways, but I saw glimpses of it the whole week. And I saw my, my sister and her fiancé, and, and, and I'm just thinking... How did they do that? How did, how did they make it this long? And, and how will my sister make it? And, and, and it just clicked. They, they are doing that still because they understand what marriage is about. They understand that it's not about them primarily. It's about Christ. They understand that marriage is not primarily something that God has given just to make me happy. And if I'm not happy, then I'm done with it. No, it's about Christ. It's about worship. It's about witness. And when love, when your personal feelings of love are not there, when your happiness is not there, you remember Christ. You remember what He's done for you. You remember who He is. You remember you're part of the church and you want to submit to Him and worship Him and magnify Him and witness to Him. And you, and you say, I'm going to continue in this covenant out of worship and witness. And I realized 
if that's what marriage is about, then I should marry Candace, because I know she understands that. That's what we did. Your love and your happiness, your feelings of love and your happiness are not going to sustain your marriage. They will not. But worship and witness will sustain your marriage. Understanding that my marriage is an opportunity to worship Christ, to lay down his life for me by reflecting that in this marriage. And, and, and my marriage is an opportunity to witness to the world around me a picture of what Christ has done. That will sustain your covenant in the hard times. That, nothing is more powerful to unite a husband and a wife together than a desire to worship Christ and witness to those around you through your marriage. That is the most powerful thing a marriage can know. You will make it through anything if you have those two things. Worship and witness. You know what this means also? It means that we do not treasure our marriages too much. We do not make marriage the end-all, be-all. We do not make our spouse the center of our lives. We make Christ the center of our lives. His love the center of our lives. It is so much better than the love of your spouse. It will last forever. You you will not be married to your spouse in heaven, but you will be part of the, the bride of Christ, united with him. And all the joys of marriage now are just faint pictures of the joy we're going to have with Christ. You know, I was thinking this week even, and, and a little bit afraid to say this, but please understand what I mean by this. But if, if you're single, and you're thinking about marriage, you need to understand you're not missing much. Okay? Now, understand what I, what I mean. Marriage is wonderful, Candace. But in comparison to the marriage that we will experience with Christ, you're not missing much we have something so much better waiting for us that we get to be part of marriage. Marriage here and now is just the shadow. That's the substance. That's the real thing. We get to experience it now. We're going to experience it even more so forever and ever. The fulfillment of marriage is in Christ and the church. We should fix our eyes on Christ and let that fuel our marriages now and let that help us anticipate that day. I want to read from him as we close. The church is one foundation. The church is one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. She is his new creation by water and the word. From heaven he came and he sought her to be his holy bride. With his own blood he bought her and for her life he died. Mid toil and tribulation and tumult of her war, She waits the consummation of peace forevermore till with the vision glorious her longing eyes are blessed and the great church victorious shall be the church at rest. Let's fix our eyes on Christ who loved us and gave himself for us as we turn to worship now.